Hello, everybody. This is Brian McGrath. Welcome to another edition of Ed Choice Chats. Today, we are happy to have Danielle Shockey on the show with us. She is currently the CEO of Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Prior to that, she was the Deputy Superintendent of Education for the state of Indiana. And prior to that, she spent 16 years as a principal in public schools in Indianapolis. And prior to that, she was a friend of mine. Uh, Danielle and I went to school together and we're happily got to reconnect a few years ago, kind of on our professional paths. And it's been great to have her in my orbit again. So Danielle, welcome to the show. Great to, uh, great to chat with you today. Thanks for having me, Brian. I'm excited to just to kind of chit-chat a little bit about what's going on in education with you. There is plenty going on in education, and that's why we want to talk with you today. I want to kind of take you back a few months in a pre-COVID world, which is hard for any of us to remember, I think. But back in February, we had an event that you attended, and it was in Florida. It was fabulous. We were all together like real people want to be. And we talked about the kind of infrastructure needs that education will need going forward, assuming that uh, there'll be more and more educational options for people, you know, say over the next decade or two. And you were uh, an attendee in that event and a great participant. And I just wondered if you could kind of harken back to that and tell me any recollections you have of that and what the event was like, who was there, what you learned, what you thought of it. So I, as a takeaway, and I still feel this very strongly as um, the participants and I have now connected in other places professionally, whether that's following each other on LinkedIn or reading blog posts or, you know, just other ways, I think what strikes me the most is there are so many bright spots. And so I think sometimes when you're in your own space, your own city, and you're, you know, you're, you're figuring out what to do next in terms of opportunities for, for children, for education, where we're headed. And I think sometimes you get a little downtrodden. That was such an uplifting experience to talk to people who have had, like I said, successes, people who are fighting the good fight, and they're, you know, they're seeing a uh, you know, variety of things going well. And so that's what I, I left feeling so uplifted. I also left feeling like not alone. And so as, you know, personally I'm engaged in some work in this space of potentially um, a, a school model here in Indianapolis with a partnership with Girl Scouts, and um, we don't need to talk a lot about that, but I now know that there's this network of really brilliant people that I didn't know existed. So that was a real personal takeaway that I feel like if there was a need, I would know who to go to, and that felt really good. And then also, the other thing that strikes me, and I think I said this to you early on, the themes that are that are still being discussed, the themes we discussed, the takeaways we had, are not new. And so I think that's just interesting, right? You know, the same kind, we're, we're feel like we're trying to solve for some of the same perpetual issues, and it, it, maybe that feels a little frustrating, right, that we can't, that we haven't yet got further down the path of solving for, um, you know, in this case, you know, teacher pipeline, teacher talent, teacher retention facilities and looking at it differently. And, and how do you just shift that whole paradigm, you know, for, for families, for, for, for cities, for states, for policymakers. And so th I guess those are my big takeaways. Yeah, it was great. And I, I remember that event, uh, it struck me as really interesting because we host a lot of different events at EdChoice and love to bring people together. That's one of our, our kind of our core missions, I believe. 
And the ones I've done, like this one we did, which we partner with the Walton Family Foundation on, uh, they're the ones who helped us make it possible. What I try to do is bring in a lot of new people together who maybe haven't had those conversations before in that kind of group, or who maybe, like you, are, are, are looking for others to kind of be fellow travelers with as they embark on some of this stuff. And what I loved about that event was that I knew almost nobody there, and I was the one who was inviting people, <laughs> and I think everybody else kind of knew nobody either. But within minutes, you could tell people were sort of so excited about just meeting other people in, in that space where it's very comfortable. You can talk about almost anything. There's no combativeness about who's right and wrong. It's all just sharing. And I think we try to purposely make it that way. So I remember thinking that event was a lot of fun because I made like 20 new friends. And who doesn't want to make new friends? So anyway, that was one of my big takeaways from it, in addition to learning a ton, because I didn't know a lot about some of the topics we were discussing. So let's dig into those topics just a little bit. And we covered purposely the idea was we would talk about transportation facilities going forward and teacher talent pipeline. Let's focus on the latter two there, uh, teacher talent and facilities, because I think those are things that especially now that we're all living in a different world than we were just those six months ago, those things are critical. So what can you tell me through all your experience, both before, you know, the kind of the COVID world and, and now after about sort of the teacher talent pipeline and the challenges there within? I mean, what is, is there really a teacher shortage? What do we do to address it if there is? What are the biggest challenges of getting people to become teachers in the first place? Uh, is there really a teacher shortage? That's a great question. You know, obviously living in the Department of Ed world for four years, there was there was indications, but I don't think the indications were as big as some would have us believe. I mean, frankly, we re, you know we submitted a report every year to the U.S. Department of Education regarding the hard to fill positions. How many emergency licenses were we issuing? in any given subject in any given year across the state of Indiana, and that, that really didn't grow. Now, granted, this has been five years ago, but that was certainly at the end of that time, at 2015, 2016, um, in my last year there, we were working on how do you, how do you get more people interested in the teaching profession. Um, and so I, I, that's absolutely important, getting more people, more talented people, but I think really for me, it's not their traditional person. We were so focused, it seemed, on, you know, that undergrad. You know, how do you get more young people interested in education as a pathway for them? And I think we have to broaden that conversation. To how do we get more people engaged in educating our youth? And so who are those folks? And I don't think they only have to come from, like I said, a traditional career college pipeline. And I think what I enjoyed about when I, you know, we were together back in February was the different technology potential solutions that could exist to bring, and I'm using the word educator very broadly, right? How can we bring experts? How can we bring the best thinkers in their space into our classrooms to be teachers? And, you know, and how could that be different? You know, does every classroom have to have one adult to 25 children, or is it really more of a facilitator approach and we bring in content experts to help educate our youth? I think, I think now, because of COVID, 
that's something that I think my feeling is, and again, I have four children who are not all doing variety or versus and hybrid, and even in my role at Girl Scouts, we've figured out it used to be such a place-specific thing, meaning that if we couldn't get girls to come to, let's say, Roche Diagnostics or Cook Medical and actually learn from the experts that, you know, how can you do it? Well, now we've had girls learning from people at NASA. We've had girls in central Indiana participating in STEM content across the country. And so I think potentially what COVID will help us all see is that space is less of a barrier. And how can that potentially impact the educator pipeline? And I know that's maybe a way longer answer than you're looking for, Brian, but I have a lot of thoughts there. I just think there's a lot of potential that now people might be more interested in innovative education solutions. No, it's a great answer. And I think it's one that you know, this is the topic that can go on and on and on forever, because one of the things that came out of that meeting and that event was the idea that we should find a way to, and you alluded to this, but like take our rock star teachers, take the best teachers mm-hmm. and and leverage their skills better than we do now. Like sometimes, I mean, I have three kids and you get your teacher assignment at the beginning of the year and you're like, great, I got a great teacher. You know, Mr. Vincent, what a great teacher. Wouldn't it be great if Mr. Vincent could teach more than just my kid and his 20 classmates? So how do we do that? And that's one of the things that came out of this meeting was people were throwing out ideas about how the technology would allow us to do that. Some of that comes down to sort of a regulatory and licensing procedure, though, and I know you have some experience in that. And so do you think if we made it easier for people to be engaged in education in that way, and maybe it's not even a full-time gig, maybe it's a hey, I'm a teacher a couple hours a day, and then I also go do my other job as an accountant. I mean, is that possible? Is that manageable from a, you know, kind of a policy standpoint? So, then again, this is just a lot of my own opinion, but I also sat in a lot of State Board of Education meetings where we, I mean, this was a topic often, teacher licensure. And in that time, um, again, that I was in that role in those four years, there was continued legislative change being made that was allowing for what I I would say would be a broadening of opportunity. And oftentimes the barrier came up, particularly, like I said, in that State Board of Education meeting, was people weren't so concerned about the accountant teaching math or the researcher at Lilly teaching, you know, chemistry. It was how do you help them connect with children. And so it wasn't the content. It was more of how to teach them that pedagogy of developmentally connecting with youth. How do you make sure that they're they're matching the content with, you know, the differentiation, if you will, of all the students in the classroom. And so I would like to think, Brian, that you could somehow almost, you know, take any person who is in any profession who has a passion and wants to teach teach youth about the thing that they are really, you know, drives them, how could we have a little type of, I'm going to call it a certification of sort, where you just help them understand there's obviously safety things and there's some things I'm sure the states would want, but why couldn't there be? Why couldn't there be a little training module of, yeah, we would love for you to come talk about your research in biochemistry, but we also want to help you understand what today's classroom is like a little bit maybe about, you know, management um, and so forth. And maybe a module isn't long enough, but that seems like that would be so easy to solve for. And it, I, and I, I don't know 
why policy couldn't create that space. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, I do a lot of youth coaching, right? My kids are, have, you know, they're getting older as it is now, but like I still coach one of my kids' football teams this fall. And before then, they actually give you, you take a little class that says, hey, here's how you actually might want to teach the techniques, but also remember you're coaching sixth graders and here's some ways to deal with them. And so uh-huh. I think it's probably possible to do. It's just a matter of, I guess, pulling it together. And the person who's going to say, hey, I want to do this is going to raise their hand. Right. It's going to take a special person. So they're already coming to the table with the desire to do so, which to me, I think would be half, you know, that, that already speaks volumes. If you want to coach, if you want to teach, you're a special kind of person to begin with. And I would think too, the technology available today, I mean, you could, it wouldn't be hard to throw together, you know, a bunch of different teaching mechanisms on any number of platforms that would say, hey, here's how you actually want to do the pedagogy. So let's talk for briefly about, so I think you're right, teaching could change going forward, but what about the need, and you alluded to this a little bit, facilities being the need for different kinds of facilities, perhaps. I mean, one of the things that came up on our meeting in the report that came out was that, you know, we may not need to build these enormous buildings that are supposed to last 100 years anymore. Maybe we need to build smaller buildings that have different kind of uses and, you know, they're not set on the traditional classroom model, but rather big gathering spaces. What do, you, what do you think about that? What should schools look like in 10 years physically? I can't. This, this one is like, I'm like 110% yes. <laughs> I think partnering with schools with a focus, a choice focus that is attractive to families and to youth and to communities. But that was the other theme I think that I liked that came out of February was what does the community need? You know, what what is this community saying they're looking for for their youth? And so if they have a need, how can we look to the community resources, which oftentimes might be industry or, you know, um, a space, and how can we share that space? And I actually said, I can't imagine you don't agree. COVID has also taught us that. How many people now, and again, I in my role right now, I just released 35,000 square physical feet where we used to have offices, and we've walked away from all of them. And we've walked into actually doing something completely different, partnering with 24 co-working spaces in Indiana. So for my field staff now, again, we're saving $312,000. Field staff is closer to the people they serve. We're working smarter in that way. So again, I'm just one little teeny tiny example, but so many people I'm talking to are like, I don't need this big building anymore. And so I think education is the same. I think, you know, there's micro schools, there's learning pods. I think, again, I think if the choice movement doesn't take this moment in time of COVID and families, I mean, how many families also, I mean, just following in my own neighborhood, have opened up their eyes to, because they're not happy, they're not happy with the hybrid or they're not happy with the virtual, and they're starting to look around. And I think in that looking around, they're recognizing that, gosh, education looks a lot of different ways, and I don't know that they knew it before. And so I just think there's a lot of opportunity there. And I think facilities, I'm sorry, I kind of went around the (laughs) barn on this one, but no, I I do think there's a whole lot of potential in co-location, partnering with, and I think it's similar to, like I said, with the teacher thing, right? How can we, so let's say we do co-locate in a tech park, uh, you know, a a micro school of sorts, or a couple micro schools in a larger space, 
how can you also then utilize the experts in those spaces to be partners in the school and real partners, education partners, teaching partners. So I think there's mutual benefit there. Yeah, I think you're right. One of the things, I'd be curious your thoughts on this. So one of the things that I've noticed in my years of being in school choice is that one of the places we have not really cracked the code is in suburban communities. And I don't know if it's because they think they have it so good and now maybe they're realizing that it's not as good as they thought or if it's this this sort of physical thing because um you know my kids all play school sports and the facility you know the football field the basketball arena the whatever the baseball stuff is a big part of the community and i guess do you think you could decouple those things i mean could you have see a world where you're attending uh, abc high school, but you play sports somewhere else, and that's just the way it is. There's no longer kind of the hyper-intensity around high school sports, because that's a big part of the facility, the, the physical structure of, I go to this school, and I think there's like a, something, a psychological part of that, although I'm just making that up. But I don't know. What do you think about that? So I'm actually going to take a school example, and I think I maybe mentioned it in February. So in Chicago, there's something called After School Matters, and it's geared towards middle school and high school students. And it's actually a Chicago public schools system, independent nonprofit that happens every day from 4 to 7. And it spans sports, communication, leadership, STEM, and it's all these amazing opportunities for every student in the Chicago public school system to participate. And, and so it doesn't replace the school sports, but it's actually also has arts, arts and culture. Um, and so students are now, you know, doing, you know, they're in a symphony or they're in a dance team or they're on a equestrian team. And so they have all these choices and it's very popular. It's achieved great success, student retention for those students, the persistence, their grades are higher, their grad rates are higher compared to their peers who are not in it. So I think it speaks to, because it's, like I said, it's all the students across the district. Why couldn't a community do that? Why couldn't you build a structure where any student after school, and I'm just taking Indianapolis as our example, let's go Indianapolis and all the donut counties. So you have quadrants and you choose what you're passionate about. So again, whether that's fencing or football, and you have a location to go do that, and now it's not so school-based as much as it is, this is our our city's sports or our city's arts and culture for youth. So I definitely think that's possible. And again, I think families, again, because of COVID, are beginning to recognize that, okay, maybe what I thought my school was doing and providing, it's kind of uncovering some things, I think. Good and bad things. Yeah, no, I think that's right. You know, it's interesting because they're going back to the sports thing one more time just because there are so many different outlets for athletics and other arts and things like that that aren't school-based. It doesn't seem like it'd be a huge leap. And, in fact, in some schools, you know, they're large enough that, you know, if you're not one of the 12 best basketball players in your school, you're not going to play basketball anyway at your school. So you find some other outlet as it were. So I wonder if that will accelerate under the new regime that we're under. We talked about it. We didn't mean to talk about it at the event, but technology came up a lot. I mean, it wasn't a formal topic, but of course, it's intertwined to all these things. But what do you think we're learning about the role technology can play in education going forward, both kind of the promise and perhaps the perils of it that we're all living through right now? But I mean, how do you see that shaking itself out over the next couple of years? 
I think we've uncovered the inequities in access and opportunity that I think we had to solve for, or we are still kind of probably in the throes of trying to solve for, for all of our students. But I think we'll have found that we can figure it out. So I think that's a, a promising practice that's come from this. I think we've probably uncovered, and maybe a little self-reflection from the educator space, that there's probably a lot of educators who suddenly realized, oh my gosh, I don't know half of what I thought I did. I didn't really fully understand how to create an asynchronous classroom for my students. And so I think hopefully this has accelerated the educators' desire as well as awareness that they really probably need to step up because our students, our youth are so, I think, far more advanced than we are as adults in this tech space. So I hope that is a positive that comes from it. I think on the flip side, I worry. I think what I've recognized, and again, some of my peers, my neighbors, my families, my community, relationships and education are gonna to continue to be really important. And it's hard to build a relationship behind a computer screen. So I think that's something that I, I think we still have to solve for. You can be the best teacher in the tech world, or, you know, I mean, behind a screen, um, and these children, and I think even the adults are still craving that connection with people. So I don't think it's going to be the only solution, but I think we've probably are learning a lot of lessons. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I've seen in my own children how they've reacted to the virtual, hybrid, in-person world, and true to form, you know, to my core beliefs about education. One of them has done really great with it. One of them does done just fine. And one of them is struggling mightily. And they have the exact same technological resources available to them at home. They have a dad who does not know how to do any of it. So it's not like one of them is getting more help than the other. But it's just been fun to watch. I mean, from a weird kind of scientific way. But now we have to, as a parent, get more engaged and try to figure out how to solve for the one that's not doing well. But anyway, so you're now in the role of CEO of the Girl Scouts. I know you're still interested in education. There are no former educators. I think once you're in that that uh, orbit, you never quite leave. But what do you see the role as a group of the Girl Scout, like the Girl Scouts, being in education going forward? If you're going to have a, you know, a, an educational ecosystem that has many more players in it, it's not just the traditional school down the street. It's online. It's all these different things. What do you think Girl Scouts or other groups like that? What can they do to make the educational experience in their communities better for everybody? I think it takes a collection of organizations like the Girl Scouts, like after school, you know, you name it, arts across, the, across the, the gamut of opportunities to really come together and put together a system where all students can access it equally. And I think, because right now, we, all of us, youth sports, youth activities, youth programs, are vying for the same hours of time. And and, it, and there's a disadvantage of access that I think is hurting our youth. So, and I'll just give you a real example. Talking to Indianapolis Public Schools about a year ago, they said to me, you know, we have no mechanism to right now know which one of our schools have Girl Scouts in them. And they weren't saying, I mean, they were saying there's a value to Girl Scouts, but they didn't have a mechanism to know where the pockets were where there was no opportunities for youth. So I think what will be really important moving forward is for the youth-serving organizations to partner with their communities, and whether that's through the school or the community in general, like, like I mentioned the Chicago model, 
how can we all come together and put together this repository, catalog, whatever you want to call it, of these are all the youth opportunities that happen after school and on weekends from free to low cost to whatever. So every family can access it. I think, I think we're a great corollary. I always say this to my superintendent friends. What I can provide in the Girl Scout experience, and I can't help but talk selfishly, a school district would be challenged to put together as many opportunities for their youth. Just because we have a whole staff of people who are going out and building internship program partners with you know, leaders across the state. And so let us be that partner. Why do they have to solve alone for the college and career readiness pathways and the opportunities for internship and externship and networking for students? Why can't we lean on each other? So I think there's a whole lot going on in the youth serving space that if we come together, would be really great for children. You know, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've been involved in, I don't know how many conversations recently, but it's people from our community saying, hey, we want to do this cool thing. And then you go, great. Hey, you know what? They're kind of working on a similar thing. Let's kind of collaborate at least a little bit. It doesn't mean there has to be one big, you know, mm-hmm. one big effort, but it can be like, hey, you should at least know what Girl Scouts is doing because they may be able to teach you something and you can share resources or at least share ideas and whatnot. So I think that's great. It may be one of the best things that comes out of this whole experience is that a lot more people will engage more directly rather than just saying, Hey, we support this conceptually. Here's some money. You know, they might actually jump in the game themselves. Let me kind of wrap up with two kind of questions for you. What do you think ultimately the biggest change will be in K-12 education over the next decade? Wow. Um, one of them is just very operationally speaking, I think transportation. I, I, and I know that was actually a theme from February that we had planned to talk about that we didn't get too deep into. And I, know, I said I know nothing about it. But um, I just think financially, I think it's going to be something as well, financially as well as innovation. You know, innovation is going to continue to grow. Finances are going to continue to be challenged. I think it's going to be something that's going to change a lot in the next decade is transportation and what's expected of the system, the community around getting students to a space. And I really hope, it's hard for me to answer this because I have a lot of hopes that would happen in the next decade, (laughs) but I don't know. Hope is a good thing. Right. Let's I all know, get a, all the hope we strategy. need. <laughs> I would like to think people's eyes are going to be more opened to school doesn't have to look like four walls and a brick building that's going to stand for 100 years. Just the paradigm about what education can look like, I would hope, is going to look different in 10 years. But history has taught us that probably isn't going to be the case. Yeah, actually, let me uh, let me ask this to wrap up. I, 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 I prefer to end on hope, but... What do you think should change, but probably won't in the next 10 years? The same thing I just said. (laughs) (laughs) You think it'll still look, I kind of wonder the same thing. Like as much as I, you know, get inundated daily with, hey, this is the brand new world. um, Something tells me it's not going to be quite that easy, that we're going to have to keep working really hard if we want something different. Which, you know, that's, that's the history of the world, right? I mean, you know, we all think that. The iPhone we all carry, you know, came about with, you know, one day and it was all perfect. But, you know, it took years and years and years for those guys to get that technology right. So anyway, well, that's very helpful. Do you have any closing thoughts you want to share with our EdChoice Chats universe? Um, I guess I really just think that this moment in time, there's a lot to capitalize on that I think potentially could help the choice conversation. And I think making it more normalized is something that might come from it. 
that innovation and personalized learning is something that's really important, I think. And I don't think anybody would disagree with that. I don't think you have any family who would say, no, I want my kid to have the same thing as every other kid. So how can we take what they're experiencing right now and help expand their minds to having future innovation um, in the education space? That is a wonderful sentiment to end up on, so we'll do that. Danielle Shockey, thank you so much for spending time with EdChoice Chats today, and uh, we'll hopefully talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us for another episode of EdChoice Chats. Be sure to subscribe to the EdChoice Chats podcast wherever you choose to listen to them. 